Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 88 for the first third of October 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether Mars moon Phobos is hollow. And that's really it for the claim for this episode. Phobos, which is the inner little tiny, tiny, tiny moon of Mars, it's less than 20 miles across, uh, is artificial. It's a spaceship, an ancient, battered, I can hear everybody running for the hills right now, an ancient, battered spaceship. Before we really get to Richard Hoagland, whose voice you just heard, we can go back over 50 years to 1958, the same year that NASA was founded. In fact, the date on this episode, October 1st, 2013, is the 55th anniversary of that founding. However, this story has really nothing to do with NASA for once. In 1958, the Russian astrophysicist Yosef Sklovsky possibly, uh, was studying Phobos' orbit around Mars. The moon had only been discovered in the very late 1800s, but it was known how long it took to orbit the planet. Based on how long the moon took to go around Mars once, one could then predict where it should appear around Mars on a given future date. What was being discovered around this time was that Phobos was not actually where it should have been. It was slightly ahead in its orbit of where it should be. We call this a secular acceleration, meaning that the moon was accelerating its speed around Mars, meaning that it was gradually getting closer and closer and closer to the planet. Shklovsky's contribution was that he proposed a model where the secular acceleration could be explained by, quote, a thin sheet of metal, end quote, structure for Phobos, meaning that it's hollow. He based this on estimates of how dense Mars' upper atmosphere was thought to be, and concluded that it could not exert enough force on the moon, if it were solid and so it weighed a lot, to change its orbit the amount that he observed it to be. Hopefully to put it in a less complicated way, if we go back to very basic physics, if you want to change the movement of a big, massive object, you have to apply a large force. If you want to change the movement of a big, lightweight object, you can apply a smaller force. Shklovsky determined that Mars' atmosphere could not provide a large enough force to change Phobos if Phobos were really heavy. Therefore, it had to be light, and since we had a decent idea of how big it was, then it had to be hollow to still be that large. One of his calculations was that it was an iron sphere 16 kilometers wide, but less than 6 centimeters thick. Obviously, in that kind of situation, this object would be artificial. Shklovsky wrote a book in 1962 entitled Universe, Life, Intelligence. It was later expanded in 1966 with the added co-author Carl Sagan, and the title was changed to Intelligent Life in the Universe. I haven't read the book, but Richard Hoagland claims that there's a large chunk of it that's devoted to the moon Phobos and how it's artificial. In 1969, however, Shklovsky was shown to be wrong about Phobos, and this is, of course, the part of the narrative that Richard Hoagland and others like to leave out when telling this story. Shklovsky's observations were shown to be overestimates, that instead of Phobos's orbit decaying at 5 centimeters per year, it was 1.8 centimeters per year, uh, roughly about 40% as much as it was thought to be before. And we can now attribute it, and it can be fully accounted for, 
by the tidal effects as opposed to atmospheric drag, something that Shklovsky did not consider. We have also had spacecraft flying around Phobos, or at least fly by Phobos, and so we can estimate how massive it is. From the mass and the measurements of its volume, we know that its average density is about 1.887 grams per cubic centimeter, or a little bit less than twice as dense as water. Rock is typically three to four times as dense as water, so this indicates that Phobos is probably a rubble pile. In astronomy, a rubble pile means that you have an object that's been hit so many times that it's fully fractured, and while there's some material strength left, it can be best modeled as a large pile of gigantic boulders held together by mutual gravity and then a teeny tiny bit of material strength itself. Most asteroids, other than the largest ones, are probably rubble piles. Phobos being a rubble pile would not be unusual. And with that, one might think that the story would die. It did until 2010, when it was revised by the Coast to Coast AM pseudoscience advisor, I mean, the science advisor, Richard C. Hoagland. Anyone who's listened to this podcast for more than a few episodes by now has probably had a good idea of what Richard Hoagland's shtick is. It can be classified into a few different things. First, Richard takes photographs and he blows them up in size and increases contrast and claims that the image noise and compression artifacts are real and evidence of artificiality. He's especially big on rectilinear features, which just so happen to be a main feature of compression algorithms. Two, he practices numerology and he searches for numbers that play a part in his made-up physics and mythology, and when those numbers show up, he claims that that is evidence for his idea being true. Third, or a third thing that he does, is that he often will create a straw man argument about what people say or claim, read well beyond the actual intention of something that someone has said, and then he uses that straw man of what someone actually didn't say to support his ideas and say that, look, these authority figures are saying what I'm saying. A fourth thing that he does is that he insists that he's reading the data correctly, and that anyone who doesn't see what he does in the data is looking at it either wrong, or they're being paid to say that Richard is wrong. Whenever possible, the fifth option is that he references science fiction as evidence, especially Star Trek, and his ties to his, quote, good friend Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. We see all five of these in his claims about Phobos. The reason that 2010 was the year of interest by Richard for Phobos is that it was February 16, 2010, that the European Space Agency, or ESA, or ESA, swung by Phobos with its spacecraft, Mars Express. Mars Express has a radar instrument called Marsis, and it has a very high-resolution camera called the High Resolution Stereo Camera, or HRSC. Mars Express is on a highly elliptical orbit that can take it very close to Phobos, and in 2010 it did, and they took the highest resolution pictures and the first radar data of the moon, at least to that date. After a week or so, they released some of the data. Already, Richard Hoagland sniffed a conspiracy. Why? Because they sat on the data for a whole week. It couldn't be because it takes a while to downlink data from Mars. It couldn't be because it takes a while to make sure that they've processed the data correctly for an object they've never imaged with instruments before, or at least with that instrument before. It couldn't be because the scientists themselves wanted to see if they could get any initial science out of the data before releasing to the public and other scientists who might try to scoop them on something. No, it's because, according to Richard Hoagland, 
they were figuring out how to hide the amazing artificiality from the public by adding something as simple as image noise. And the fact that Richard, after spending a day with Photoshop, claimed to have figured out an algorithm to remove that noise and find the amazing artificiality that led him to claim that they actually wanted people to figure it out and that this was disclosure and that full disclosure of this artificiality would happen before the end of the year. Well, what happens if you try to argue with Richard about this? If you try to tell him that, you simply disagree. Robert Zubern found that out on May 26, 2010. Robert, let's get your take on Phobos, and then we'll take calls. Well, on Phobos, uh, first of all, I guess Richard and I are going to have to agree to disagree. I, I don't think there's the remotest chance that Phobos is an artificial object. Robert, have but, excuse you read me, the paper? Hold on, Richard. Excuse Hold me, on. let me... Have you read excuse the paper? Me. I would like, Richard, excuse me, I'd like to see... I let Richard. you talk now for five minutes straight. Please you know, let me I'm talk. Please let me talk, Richard. Very, uh, Richard, please let me talk. I have you, just sat you, on I, the table. I let you talk without interruption. I would like I to have talk. Just, Robert. Let me talk, Richard. Please let me talk. Thank you. And people wonder why Phil Plait refuses to be on with Richard Hoagland. Uh, so what are these data? When you really get down to it, it's the Marsis radar data. MARSIS stands for the Mars Advanced Radar for Subsurface and Ionosphere Sounding. It's a pulse radar sounder and altimeter and has ground-penetrating radar capabilities. It's effectively, if not precisely, works by sending a radar beam at an object and listening for the echoes as the radar bounces back. The timing of when those echoes happen and the intensity will give you information about how far away the stuff is and possibly what it's made of. It might even be a series of return, or a series of radar echoes, each one of them coming from a different radar reflector that's at a different distance from the craft. This is kind of like if you have a bright laser pointer, and you shine it on a series of translucent plastic sheets that are separated by air. You'll see with your eye a separate laser spot on each plastic sheet. You can try this at home if you have a laser pointer and a bunch of plasticware or for storing food, for example. Stack the lids and shine the laser at an angle, and you should see a separate spot on each lid. In this case, the laser is the radar transmitter, the lids are different radar reflectors a different distance away, and your eye is the detector. In doing this, you can build up a 3D picture of an object. Ice and water make really good radar reflectors at the wavelengths that Mars is tuned to, and that's why the instrument is on Mars Express but it can also pick out large changes in density, like with the laser showing you changes between air and plastic. When Marsis was used on Phobos, the team found that there were voids within the moon. To quote the ESA press release specifically, quote, Previous Mars Express flybys have already provided the most accurate mass yet for Phobos, and the high-resolution stereo camera, HRSC, has provided the volume. When calculating the density... This gives a surprising figure because it seems that parts of Phobos may be hollow. The science team aim to verify this preliminary conclusion. End quote. Note the grammatical error in the last sentence. I should also point out that often NASA press releases also will have small grammatical errors, and some might even have minor factual errors. This becomes important later on in this story. It's the phrase that Phobos may be hollow that must have set Richard off with glee that they really truly did use that term and he didn't have to make it up or read into other words. 
Richard went on to a few different shows and claimed that an inside source from ESA had told him that there was discussion within the Marsis team that the data clearly showed that there were gigantic void spaces, rooms with walls, ceilings, and floors, and firmaments that all showed that it was a spacecraft and was fully one-third hollow. Richard even went on to claim that his inside source sent two graduate students to a space summit that President Obama had in 2010 with data showing that it was artificial, but Obama and others refused to listen. Howard Hughes runs the podcast The Unexplained, and it was on that podcast that Hoagland discussed a lot of this. To his credit as a journalist, Howard contacted the study's author and a man quoted in the ESA press release, Olivier Watassi and Howard released a roughly 30-minute episode immediately after his interview with Richard, asking about the claim of Phobos being hollow. This is why I pointed out the grammatical mistake in the press release and frequent mistakes in NASA's. Olivier was clearly not a native English speaker. Howard pointed out that it would seem that an organization like ESA or NASA would have the best editors around and know what they're talking about when they try to translate things and be very specific about their language. My preemptive point is that they try, but they aren't perfect. Here's the relevant exchange. Probably we should not have used um, hollow, because I think that's... um Yes, but because for some of us, English is not our uh, native language, of course. So you're, under, you're saying that the, the word hollow and that interpretation was simply a loss in translation? Yes, I think so, because we, what we wrote is that we said part of Phobos is maybe hollow. And in fact, what we maybe should have uh, written on the web and uh, said to everybody, and that we know we have the data for that, is that uh, Phobos is porous. It's not a complete solid body. We know that from the data that we have that poros, uh, Phobos might be maybe uh, 30% porous. In other, in other words, there are 30% of void inside Phobos. And we should have used the, the word uh, porous or low density in, in, uh, instead of uh, hollow. Later in the interview, Olivier points out that the press release did not in fact state that Phobos is hollow, but rather that parts of Phobos may be hollow, which he meant to mean and be interpreted as Phobos is porous. He also stated that people are welcome to their opinion about this kind of thing, but that there are no facts that could possibly back up their claims that Phobos is hollow. And he also blew away the whole inside source thing, stating that no one in ESA seriously believes Phobos is artificial, nor did they send any grad students to see Obama with data about it being artificial either. Nearly two years later, Richard rebutted this simply by stating that Olivier is getting paid to keep up the lies. Richard also presented a straw man, saying that Olivier believes that it's porous as in sand in an hourglass, whereas Richard is thinking voids like Swiss cheese. That's wrong. Olivier never said that, but Richard used it to create a false dichotomy, saying that the sand model is wrong and his void model is correct, when in fact, neither is what scientists think. As I explained earlier, it's the rubble pile model with voids on the scale of millimeters to maybe a few meters. But Richard spent well over 10 minutes lamenting that Howard was unable to get Olivier to be honest, 
honest as in state that Richard was correct, and that Richard found it very frustrating that he couldn't get any good or real scientists to be honest because they've all been bought and paid for. Linda Moulton Howe did her own very, very base-level investigation in 2013. LMH, as she's often abbreviated on Coast to Coast, is an investigative journalist who runs the EarthFiles.com website. She's been associated with Coast since the very early days with Art Bell, and was the 11th guest Art had on his new Dark Matter radio program on October 3, 2013. She claimed that Phobos is weird, and that she was sent a quote-unquote web article that describes Phobos as a camouflaged object that has a hollow interior, and someone from ESA leaked it to her. She did a teensy bit of research, found a recent press release from Purdue University that quotes Jay Malosh, who didn't accept my faculty application two years ago, and she contacted Jay to do an interview under what sounded like false pretenses. She told him that she wanted to interview him about why they wanted to do a sample return mission to Phobos. Instead, the roughly 15-minute interview that she played on Coast was almost entirely made of her asking in numerous ways and numerous times about the validity of her quote-unquote leaked information that Phobos could be hollow and unnatural. Each time, Lash told her no. No evidence at hollow, no evidence artificial, no one at ESA thinks it's artificial, and it's just porous, not hollow. I mentioned that we see five different types of claims by Hoagland in this whole mythology about Phobos being hollow. I focused mainly on the third and fourth with the radar data and interpretation of the word hollow, but he does use the others. For example, he did claim that he figured out an algorithm to subtract some of the noise that they added to the image, and it shows it's artificial. I've looked at his rendition of the images, and it's an overuse of the sharpen and contrast tools and reading into image noise and compression artifacts as usual. For numerology, he claimed that Phobos orbits Mars in 7 hours and 39 minutes, and that both the number 7 and the number 39 are special hyperdimensional physics numbers. Therefore, they couldn't happen by accident, therefore Phobos is artificial. It's true that 39 is twice of 19.5, which is his big important number, but I don't really know how 7 factors into anything he said before. He's also entitled his two-part, very lengthy web series on Phobos' artificiality as For the world is hollow, and I have touched the sky. Anyone who's an original series Star Trek fan should recognize that. For the 99% of the rest of you, it's the title of an episode where an entire civilization, the Fabrini, believes that they are living in a planet, when in fact they are in a giant spaceship made to look like a large asteroid called Yonada. The title of the episode is a line that an inhabitant says near the beginning of the episode, after he discovered that they're living on a spaceship, and he was killed by the Oracle of the People, a godlike computer that runs the ship. So there you have it, all parts, and we have a Hoagland Quintfecta. It really seems as though the modern push for Phobos being hollow came from a lost-in-translation press release by the European Space Agency. Mix in standard pseudoscience that we've talked about numerous times on this podcast, and you can easily take that single, misused word and make a hollow mountain out of a rubble-pile molehill.
This episode's question for Q&A comes from Dory J, who asks, I was listening, again, to episode 3, where you mentioned the Oort cloud. I understand you to say that our Oort cloud is only theoretical, but that astronomers know there are Oort clouds around other solar systems. Did I get that right? If so, why do we know they exist far away, but not for sure in our own system? The answer has to do with the brightness of a bunch of stuff spread over the entire sky versus concentrated in one small area. In our solar system, when viewed from Earth, the theoretical Oort cloud is made of trillions of objects up to two light years away spread throughout the entire sky. Very, very dark objects. If you were to look in any given direction with a telescope, the field of view would hypothetically contain only a very few of those objects. The sum total brightness is beyond our current ability to detect them at any wavelength of light. Contrast that with looking at a distant star system. The entire thing is within the field of view of the telescope. If you're able to block out the light from the star, then you can see stuff around it. If you look in the infrared, then you can see objects that are cooler than the star, such as planets, which is how in a very few cases we've been able to directly image planets around other stars. And within your field of view for systems that are farther away, you have the light from those trillions of cold objects in an Oort cloud in a very compact field of view. With that in mind, it appears as though I was remembering a little bit incorrectly, and I may have jumped the gun. We have observed water-rich bodies falling into protostars and evaporating around red giants, and we have seen evidence of asteroid belts and ice-rich comet belts around other stars. But apparently we have not directly observed, yet, a spherical distribution of icy bodies around other stars. Again, not yet, anyway. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. For feedback, we have two bits today. The first is related to episode 86 on whether Mars was murdered. James F. wrote in and said that he did further research into the Xenon-129 claim and that it's used on Earth to monitor for nuclear explosions, or at least that's the claim. It's not. James found several papers about other isotopes of Xenon that could be used to monitor for nuclear explosions, but not Xenon-129. This is further evidence that even with a seemingly authoritative and technical claims, if you start to really pick apart every bit and investigate, then you can start to find the holes. The second bit of feedback relates to episode 74 on the true color of Mars. Graham D. wrote in and had the results of some digging from both the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Space Exploration and the Martian Landscape books. To quote... The first color photo from Lander 1 revealed a reddish-brown landscape, strikingly similar to a plot of Arizona desert, with a light blue sky beyond the horizon. The sky color astonished observers until color values were rectified by comparing them with colors painted on the lander. The revised photo showed a pink sky. It was tinted by the red dust in the atmosphere. When the first color data from Mars were received on Earth, we immediately used the same normalization techniques to calibrate the image. The result was surprising and disquieting. The entire scene, ground and atmosphere alike, were bathed in a reddish glow. 
Unwilling to commit ourselves publicly to this provocative display, we adjusted the parameters in the calibration program until the sky came out a neutral gray. At the same time, rocks and soil showed good contrast, the color seemed reasonable. This was the picture released eight hours after receipt of the data. But to our chagrin, the sky took on a bluish hue during reconstruction and photo reproduction. The media representatives were delighted with the Earth-like colors of the scene. Meanwhile, continued analysis supported the reality of an orangish tint throughout the scene, the atmospheric color resulting from small, suspended soil particles. Several days after the first release, we distributed a second version, this time with the reddish sky. Predictably, newspaper headlines of Martian sky turns from blue to red were followed by accounts of scientific fallibility. We smiled painfully when reporters asked us if the sky would turn green in a subsequent version. End quote. There was no puzzler last time, and there is no puzzler this time, but in two episodes, because the next episode is going to be an interview, the main topic should be about Billy Meyer and Michael Horn and their claims about Jupiter and other gas giant planetary ring systems, and when it was known when these ring systems existed, or hypothesized that they might exist. If you have ideas for a puzzler topic on that general idea, or that general topic, please send it in. As for announcements, I'm starting to fine-tune my Australia trip plans. Again, I plan to be in Melbourne, I plan to be in Tasmania, and I plan to be in Sydney. I will be in each of those places uh, towards the middle to end of December, then the end of December to the beginning of January for Tasmania, the very beginning of January, roughly January 7th to 10th for Sydney, and then after that I will be in Melbourne again. So if anyone is in that general or those general areas, again, I'm slowly learning that Australia is not just a few hundred miles across, uh, if you're interested in meeting up, please let me know. With that in mind, you can also contact me on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy. You can contact me personally on Twitter as DR, that's Dr. Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudoastro. Also, the website for the podcast is podcast.sjrdesign.net. That wraps up this topic for the 88th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, you can visit the website, podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website, or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave comments on the page for this episode on the website, the blog post for this episode on the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy blog, or the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me, at Pseudo-Astro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and my inbox is now to under 27 messages. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your other podcast website or service of choice. Every rating and every review helps increase visibility, and I do greatly appreciate visibility. 